Sorry. Good morning, everyone. Um, as, ah, I just discovered there's a glass that's kind of glued in position. Hence my fumbling. Great. Um, good morning. I'm Dan, as Lou said, and uh, good to um, have you here with us today, especially um, students who are visiting and freshers met one earlier on. Great to, that you can be with us today. And uh, Lou's already hinted, we're going through a series at the moment about making a difference. And this morning we're thinking about the right place to make a difference. Um, but I wonder if, as you think about something like that, as you see words like that, if you wonder what difference can one person make? Maybe you've wondered that sometimes as you reflect on your limitations compared to the call to go and make disciples of all nations. What difference can I make amongst the people who I spend my time with? And if we're daunted by the task of making disciples of all nations, including the United Kingdom, including those around Southampton, then we might feel small and insignificant. But imagine we tweak the question slightly and asked, what difference can God make with one person? What difference can God make with me? We're going to see one such difference as we continue in the book of Acts, looking at chapter 8 in the second part of our series on making a difference. It's still early days for the church, and in the previous chapter, they've just experienced a traumatic stoning to death of the first Christian martyr, a man called Stephen. And then we read at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. A couple of verses later, it even says that the persecutors began to destroy the church as they went from house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. You might think it's all over. The church is being destroyed. The life that's just come about is being squashed out. People are being stoned to death and put in prison. This group of fanatics claiming that Jesus is the Christ are being killed off. They're going to soon die out like others before them with their false messiahs. The truth, however, was quite different. God wasn't phased or thwarted by this outbreak of persecution. In fact, it began to look like a rather well-planned church growth strategy. Please take a look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, where we begin to see uh, the mission that the church have here. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Who had been scattered? Verse 1 tells us it's all except the apostles. This wasn't some select group, the professional Christians, the paid church workers. No, the ordinary Christians were scattered. What did they do? These ordinary believers preached the word wherever they went. And now before you glaze over thinking this doesn't apply to you, we're not meant to restrict our understanding of this verse to preaching a sermon on Sunday. That's not what's going on here. Here the word preached has a much broader meaning than that. Later on in Acts chapter 11, we read about, uh, again about this same group of ordinary believers who are scattered by the persecution And in these later verses in Acts, their activity is described as spreading the word and telling people the good news about the Lord Jesus. These ordinary believers were speaking the word of the Lord. They were telling people the message about Jesus in conversation, in homes, in communities, even in public places. 
The point is that they were communicating a message. It's not recorded exactly how they did it on every occasion, just as well, that would be a ridiculously long book. They were communicating the message, that's the point, not how they did it. Individually, in small groups, in larger gatherings, they were declaring what God had said and done. And even though it's clear that these ordinary believers were engaged in this mission, I reckon at least some of us are still sitting or standing here today and feeling quite comfortable by the distance in time and location from these early believers. Yes, it applies to all of them, but that doesn't mean it applies to me, does it? Could this really only apply to a small selection of believers? Or was this the normal activity of everyone who had encountered the Messiah? And if so, how do I measure up to their example? What does that say about how real or how important Jesus is to me? This is all very new for them. Jesus had recently been crucified and risen and returned to the Father. This was all very recent in everyone's memories. He was very important to them. What about to us? Well, I wonder if it became more normal for us to talk about Jesus in our conversation with each other, that we'd find it more natural to talk about Jesus with our friends and family and colleagues who don't yet know him. Uh, I haven't been here long enough to know whether it's like this or not in Portswood, um, but in other churches I've sometimes experienced a sense of awkwardness in talking about Jesus. Do you ever know that? A sense of awkwardness in talking about Jesus with Christians, with people at church, but a sense of awkwardness, as if that's something for the over-eager, super-righteous Christians. I know someone who works for a global computer and IT solutions supplier, manufacturer, and his job title used to be something like product evangelist uh, for the particular solution that his team supplied. This has nothing to do with Christianity or religion. Uh, it's a company you probably would have heard of. I won't advertise their name. We've already advertised Tesco and Asda and, uh, and Sainsbury's. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, it had nothing to do with Christianity or religion. But his job was to travel around the clients and potential clients and tell them how great their product was and convince them to buy it, convince them that they needed it. I wonder if we're a bit like that with many things other than Jesus. I wonder if it's more acceptable to be a product evangelist for your latest favorite gadget, a bendy iPhone 6, than to be an evangelist for the good news of Jesus. Is it more acceptable to be an evangelist for your sports team's recent victory than to be an evangelist for the good news of Jesus? And I think if we dare to ask questions like that and examine our hearts, we might end up praying and asking God our Father to help us to treasure Jesus above all else. We sang about him being our treasure earlier. But from that overflow of the treasuring of Jesus in our hearts, from that overflow, we'll want to be like the product evangelist. We'll want to be spreading this news. Maybe for some of us, God's calling us today to reflect on, on our love for Jesus and our delight in him and our treasuring of him so that we would go out and want to speak of him. This is meant, not meant to be a kind of hitting with a stick exercise today. But this is thinking about what's in our hearts, what's on the inside, and from our hearts overflowing in sharing the good news about Jesus. So that these disciples we saw last week, they could not but speak. People were telling them not to speak about Jesus, but they could not but speak about the one who turned their lives around. 
Someone has spoken of the mission of the church being accomplished by means of informal missionaries. Informal missionaries. Please don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm certainly not wanting to suggest that we don't need to set people apart to mission formally. Um, and I wholeheartedly want us to be a church that sends people out to take the gospel to other nations and supports them in doing that. But this doesn't mean that they're the only people engaged in God's mission, or even the main people engaged in God's mission. Michael Green picks this idea up in, in this quote. It's long. There's a warning for you, but take it in, it will do you good, and it hopefully will do others good through you if you take it on board. So here's Michael Green. But as early as Acts 8, we find that it's not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries, the men evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. We saw that, didn't we? The apostles stayed where they were. It was everyone else who took the gospel with them wherever they went. It was they who traveled along the coastal path of Phoenicia, over the sea to Cyprus, or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists, just as much as the apostle, as any apostle was. It was an unselfconscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. We've seen that already, haven't we? If we've got this joy in ourselves, this new life, then we're going to be wanting to share that with others. This must often have been not formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, like that bit, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread. This phrase, gossiping the gospel, I think is such a a helpful phrase. You might have heard of it before, but it's a great way of expressing what was going on in the lives of these first Christians. We might add that they did it without Twitter or Facebook or WhatsApp or Snapchat or Skype or SMS, not to mention outdated things like phone and email. Who uses those these days? They actually had to talk to each other in person. I wonder what gossiping the gospel could look like in your life, in my life. On the way to and from your lectures, around the drinks machine, at the pub at lunchtime or after work, at break time, when you're out with your mates, when you're chatting over tea and coffee, at the school gates, in your community centre, at your sports club. Where and with whom could you be gossiping the gospel? Maybe we might even pray now for one conversation this week that we might gossip the gospel. I'll give you a moment if you'd like to do that. Well, we'll think a bit later about what we could say uh, when we gossip the gospel. But for now, let's move on from, uh, from the first of the ten verses that I'm covering this morning. Um, and uh, we won't take as long on each one. But, uh, please hold on to this broad sense of meaning of preaching and proclaiming as we go through this morning. Hold on to that broad sense of meaning. It's not someone signing up on a Sunday. So with that in mind, let's continue reading what Luke records about one scattered individual, a man called Philip. What difference does God make through Philip? We read in verses 5 to 8 of the difference God makes through Philip. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. 
When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Philip proclaimed the Messiah. He told people about Jesus and what God had done through him. And Philip's words were backed up by signs. You can listen to to last week's message if you weren't here, where John helpfully spoke about looking for God to be at work in our lives. But just notice one other thing from these verses. Where did Philip go to? Where did Philip go to in these verses? This is important and hugely significant. Philip was scattered to Samaria. Samaria. Jewish people despised people from Samaria. And the Samaritans didn't think much of them either. This is more shocking than than David Cameron being scattered to the UKIP party conference. Or or Saints fans being scattered to the heart of Fratton Park, Pompey Football Club, and uh, perhaps paying off their debts. Although, I think they've now been paid. Um, The Jews had restricted their dealings with these neighboring people who he had despised. So Philip, a Jew, offering the gospel to them, was a radical step. And although this ought to stand out to us, it shouldn't surprise us, because the risen Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So now the gospel is on the move. First Jerusalem and Judea, but now Samaria, the gospel is moving out. I wonder who is the person you'd least expect to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. When I think of that question, I think of a colleague I used to have who seemed to get great pleasure from mocking me for my trust in Jesus and mocking Christianity generally. I should be clear, this wasn't a colleague in my old job at Above Bar Church. Um, (laughs) This is a colleague when I used to work in engineering, just in case you're worrying. Most of my interactions with this friend were on site or in hotels if we had a job far away. But sometimes he'd arrive in our office. And you know he'd arrived because he'd shout down the office in everyone's hearing the latest ridiculous thing. that Would you believe Dan believes this? And everyone would be greeted by him shouting this down the office. I didn't despise him. Uh, We were friends. But you could say that he's perhaps just as unlikely to trust in Jesus as the Samaritans. Who are the people you'd least expect to trust in Jesus? Is there anyone in your life who you haven't thought, who who you thought, I can't speak to them about Jesus? That would be ridiculous. Maybe the skeptical teacher or lecturer. Maybe the trivializing boss. Maybe uh, the colleague who believes in a different God, who practices a different religion. Well, perhaps you might like to pray for them now, for this person you're thinking of, and ask God for an opportunity to to gossip the gospel with them in the next couple of weeks. There's clearly more we could say from these verses, but we want to focus on how God uses Philip to make a difference with one particular individual later on in chapter 8. So please skip ahead to verse 26. Verse 26 of Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, 
an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Well, I don't suppose any of us have ever met an Ethiopian eunuch. I haven't. Um, So perhaps it might be a bit helpful for us to think a bit about who this guy is. As the text said, he's an important official in, uh, in charge of all the treasury of the Queen of the Ethiopians. He was the chief finance officer in the Ethiopian royal court. Uh, a eunuch was a, a castrated male. You can look that up in a dictionary if you want to know what castrated is. Uh, but it doesn't matter, so don't worry about it if you don't know what it is. The point is that castrated males apparently had positions of honor and trust in oriental courts. So here is a George Osborne type figure. By that, I'm referring to the kind of financial authority and high social status, nothing more. I don't know what you're thinking. Um, The gospel extends to this important official. The gospel then is for influential people as well. I wonder who are the cultural shapers in your journeys, in, 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 in the people you, you um, work with and, and live amongst. I wonder who are the cultural shapers. Who are the influencers, influencers that God could send you to? Might you dare to pray for an opportunity to explain the gospel to your boss, maybe? Your teacher? Your parent? Someone on the board of governors? Someone on the, on, the, on the committee of your residential association. People who are an influence in your life. The gospel's for them too. The gospel is most definitely not just for these influential people. Some parts of the Bible emphasize how God chooses the ordinary people, the seemingly insignificant people. The gospel is for everyone. But just imagine what God might do for those people, through those people of influence if they came to know Jesus. Who is going to tell them about him? Who is going to tell them about him? The other significant thing about this encounter is that this man's from Ethiopia. Not modern-day Ethiopia, um, but it it corresponds to a a part of modern Sudan. But here is the gospel stretching its reach out further still, beyond Samaria now. First Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now it's reaching an individual from the known ends of the world. A man who comes from the edge of the known world, from a different race. A man who couldn't even be circumcised if he wanted to. That's related to the castrator thing, if you aren't following that. Um, 
someone has described this man as representing the ultimate outsider. To become part of the Jewish community, you need to be circumcised. But this guy couldn't even do that. He's the ultimate outsider. And it may be that for someone here this morning, you feel like an outsider. Maybe you've been wondering what on earth I'm banging on about all morning, or what on earth Lou's been talking about. Maybe you're asking yourself what you're doing here. Maybe you find everything you've ever heard about Jesus to be alien, strange, or unknown. Well, if there's someone here thinking that, I'm really glad you're here today, because I'm really glad you can hear me say to you that no one is outside the good news of Jesus. No one is outside the reach of the good news of Jesus. No one is too far away to be brought into the salvation of God. Whatever your background, whoever you are, Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes all who comes to him. There's something else we need to notice about this encounter. A third thing. Who initiated it? Who brought it about? An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. This is God's mission. Philip is just an agent who's on board God's mission. And yet Philip was sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Philip was in close enough relationship with God to know where God was leading him, whatever that looked like. Presumably, it at least involved Philip talking to God in prayer and listening for God's direction and guidance. And Philip was obedient to the Spirit. When the Spirit told Philip to go, he went. In fact, it doesn't say he went, does it? The Spirit told him to go. He didn't just go, he ran. And this is key for us too. If we want to be used by God to make a difference, like Philip and all these other early Christians, then we must learn, learn to be sensitive to the Spirit as he leads us. I'm not talking about some kind of mystical experience for the super holy something to be practiced in special church gatherings. This is on-the-ground stuff, out there, by ourselves, normally, maybe not always, but out there where people are. Praying in your car on the way to work, asking God to give you sensitivity to his spirit, that he might lead you to those he wants you to go to today. Praying as you go out socially, praying for sensitivity to the spirit in your conversation. Philip was responsive to the Holy Spirit. And in this sense, he was in the right place to make a difference. That is, he was in the right place with God, the right place in his relationship with God. But also, Philip was in the right place, quite literally. He was present. He was there alongside the chariot. And that's something else that I think we can learn, that need to be present, to be with people. And also, he was listening. He was listening to where the man was at. Now, this is quite a good opportunity, wasn't it? I've never had someone reading a part of the Bible and ask me who's it talking about. That's never been uh, something I've experienced, which would have been quite good. Normally, it's been a bit harder work than that. But still, that sense of being present, being alongside people, and listening, finding out where they're at in their understanding, and then beginning with wherever they're at. In the case of this eunuch, Isaiah 53, beginning with wherever they're at, and telling people the good news about Jesus. So, how can we kind of think about this? How can we think about beginning with where people are at and telling them the good news about Jesus? Well, the first thing is that people are in different places, aren't they? We've already covered this morning people who are so many internationals in, in this city and in, in this country. And think of all the different places, perspectives they come from. The different 
understandings, the different beliefs in God some might have, or the belief that there is no God others might have. And then that's multiplied, isn't it, across all those who we know. It used to be the case that everyone would have some kind of, in England, would have some kind of basic understanding of what the Bible says, but that's just not true anymore. And we need to give people the, the kind of categories, the vocabulary, the language to understand the good news about Jesus. Now, if I wanted to tell you the good news about how efficient a building fabric is, it's exciting, it doesn't get better than this. I want to tell you how, how the good news about how efficient a building fabric is. Think of a new window. Let's think about a new window that I'm, I might be buying. I'm not, but... And I want to tell you about this window. It's so efficient. It's going to keep the heat in so well because its U-value is so low. And many of you look bored when I'm talking about U-values as if you don't appreciate how exciting that is. David's looking a little bit interested. <laughs> but most of you don't really care. But because maybe you don't have the category for understanding how important a U-value is. So I'll make it easy for you. It's what's per meter squared? What's per meter squared Kelvin? But you still look bored. So I'll start a bit further back and I'll tell you that Kelvin's a measurement of temperature and the difference in temperature by the area of the grass, grass and the energy that's gone through it. And I'm not going to try and explain it in an interesting way. But do you see the point? You have to have the category to understand what I'm talking about. If I just say, oh, this window's great. It's got a U-value of one. That's not going to help you get excited about the window. And if we just blurt out some kind of standard stuff about Jesus, that isn't necessarily going to help people get excited about him or understand who he is. We have to give the categories, the language, to understand. So maybe a way to do that could be reading the Bible with someone who has no background, to build up that foundation over time, perhaps trying to meet up in a lunch break or something and, and go through looking at a gospel there's some great resources available to help people discover Jesus in, by reading one of the Gospels. Whatever we work out doing, we need to think, what's going to resonate with people? What's going to be uh, uh, something that gets them interested? What ideas are central to someone's culture? We talked about the internationals. There's different cultures people have. Maybe it's the idea of image. So how can we bring the Gospel in to talk about image? Maybe it's the idea of shame and honor. How can we use the gospel to, how can we use shame and honor to bring the gospel into conversation? Maybe it's a culture based on fear. Um, I'm just going to give very quickly uh, a really simple um, illustration that Andrew Page, many of you might know him, uh, has done called a door. It's very exciting, uh, different to the window. This is the door which, which he uses uh, with people who have some kind of background belief in God. So not everyone has that. But maybe you're meeting someone who is, uh, is a Muslim. They would have some kind of background belief in God, some idea of religion. And a door goes something like this. I'm going to give you a very, very quick outline. You need to look it up in more detail or talk, ask me about it. But Andrew draws a door on a piece of paper on the right-hand side, and that door is the door of forgiveness. And the person, because they've got some idea of religion, they have this path leading up to the door of forgiveness to get in. And this path is things like maybe obeying the Ten Commandments or going to church, going to the mosque, um, uh, doing good works, whatever it might be. This is how you lead to the door of forgiveness. You get in through the door of forgiveness by the path of good works. Uh, and then uh, he will point out to people that he thinks that's wrong and draws another door. And this is still the door of forgiveness. You'll notice now it's cunningly moved to the other side of the page. And this door of forgiveness then has a path coming out from it, not going towards it, 
but a path coming out from it. And it describes how we still do good works, but these things we do as a result of God's forgiveness, not to get into the door of forgiveness. We do them because God has already forgiven us. And then he will spell to do some some spelling lessons, because that's also exciting as well, isn't it, to do spelling lessons. So he spells religion. He spells that do. That's how you spell religion. And he spells the gospel of Jesus, done. So it's a very simple thing that I think probably all of us could remember and use if we were wanting to explain something of the good news of Jesus to someone who has some kind of background idea of God. There's other things you can use as well. You can uh, YouTube, search on YouTube for the bridge to life or two ways to live. Or um, if you fancy something a bit more complicated, look for 321 by Glenn Scrivener, but that's complicated. But have a look at those kind of things. All of these things have weaknesses in them. Whatever summary or thing like that, they have something that they miss out generally. They don't cover the, convey the whole message. But they can nevertheless be helpful. John um, was taught a system of just talking about Jesus. And uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to explain this to you in more detail if you want to talk to him about it afterwards. But this is really interesting. And this is a flexible and not forced system. Because you can start anywhere according to the conversation you're having. And uh, this system, they suggest five basic facts about Jesus, which we could talk about in a conversation, depending where our conversation is. So it talks about the coming of Jesus, demonstrating that God exists, that he loves us, that he's interested in the human race, or the teaching of Jesus with the example of his life, showing how God wants us to live, Uh, the death of Jesus, how God enables us to be forgiven without compromising his holiness, the rising of Jesus, he really is who he claims to be, his power over death gives life to us too, or the presence with Jesus, he's with us now through his spirit, and John will be able to fill you in all this, but those five terms, the coming of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the rising of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, we remember all those, and we can kind of bring one of those into a conversation. The course suggests that if you hold those words in your heads, coming, teaching, death, rising, you'll have something useful to say when the opportunity arises. Now, some of us, just went, that all went over our heads, and we're not taking notes, and so we're thinking, what on earth was that? I just, I just missed something there. And we're daunted by all that. So here's two really simple things that we can all do, okay? Firstly, let other people know that you go to church. Simple. Secondly, let people know that you're a Christian and that it means something to you. Passing it in conversation, dropping hints in conversation, how your Christian faith has helped you here, helped you with this, what difference it's made to your life. Personal testimony can be a really natural way into the conversation to then from there tell people the good news about Jesus as Philip did with this Ethiopian. Just really, really quickly want to point out the message that was said. So that's a bit about the mission. Honestly, this is nowhere near as long as the mission. Just sort of quickly think about the message. What, what was it? What was it that Philip said to the Ethiopian? What was he reading? Please look again at verses 30 to 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, 
Who is the prophet Isaiah talking? Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I imagine that the eunuch was reading more than just those verses. I imagine that he was perhaps reading the whole of at least Isaiah 53, if not more. And if you're, uh, I really just, great thing to do at the end of today maybe is to open up the Bible at Isaiah 53 and have a read of that and see how it speaks about Jesus as, as Philip explained to him. See how this oppression and affliction, how this uh, being led away to be slaughtered, to be killed, see how all of that was for a reason, for a purpose, which Isaiah says in the verse before the ones that were read. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the message that Philip was proclaiming to the eunuch, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who God had promised, the servant in this case from Isaiah, the servant who would come and lay down his life. Lay down his life so that he could take away the punishment that we deserve. And so we can be forgiven. We can have that door of forgiveness. We can enjoy the relationship with God that he desires us to enjoy with him. We'll think about a bit more about that in a moment when we um, share the, the meal together. And then finally, verse 36 of Acts chapter 8. Uh, see how the eunuch responded. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Well, that's the natural response, isn't it? If we believe the good news about Jesus, then we will respond by being baptized. Maybe that's a challenge for some of us here today who've believed but not yet been baptized. Come along tonight and see Barry wherever he is. See Barry be baptized as well. I want to pray, though, Um, as I finish let's pray God our Father we thank you for sending your son our Lord Jesus to bring us into right relationship with you and to enjoy the adoption as your children please awaken us by your Holy Spirit so that the knowledge and experience of our salvation so fills our hearts that it overflows through our mouths to those you have scattered us amongst Please fill and direct us by your Holy Spirit to use our lips to proclaim Jesus, to gossip the good news of Jesus, and to live lives that give substance to your message spoken through us. Father, please fan into great flame the spread of your good news and the growth of your church again in our day, that many lost people may be saved and that Jesus might be honored. Amen.